Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. Welcome to episode number 42 of Graveyard Duck Podcast. With you, as always, my name is Scott. And I'm Wes. All right, Wes, uh, I'm going to say go ahead and introduce this episode. I got to take a sip from my beer here before uh, it gets too warm. Well, yeah, we don't want to like waste a beer. I completely understand. So um, we are talking this week about the state of the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1992. Uh, so this is continuing our series that we've, we've been examining every year of the NES and just kind of taking a look at some of the games that went under the radar or a bit underappreciated, uh, maybe ones that we kind of feel are a hidden gem. So uh, this is the second to last episode of this series. Um, you know, we kind of were talking a little bit before the show about um, just having this consistent through line of examining the NES, which has been really good. So um, as we get into the early 90s, as the NES starts to decline in popularity, due to the rise of the 16-bit consoles like the Super NES and Genesis, uh, we're going to be kind of winding this down a little bit. So this week we're going to be talking about 1992, um, which saw a, a quite a few number of games. And then Yeah, I was counting. It's a little over 100 still. Yeah, a little more than I thought, you know. Um, but after that, we're going to combine uh, 1993 and 94 and 95, which had one game. We're going to combine those all together in one final episode. Uh, yeah. And then kind of give you our thoughts on the whole thing from there. Yeah, we didn't want to really like short any one year, but when you're talking about a year that has, you know, seven games, a year that has one game, yeah. there's just yeah. not quite enough to fill an episode. So yeah. it, it's not that those years are any less significant. It was just more of a, to kind of give you guys your money's worth, I guess. Yeah, just to consolidate a little bit. And, uh, you know, because they're those several titles, you know, they may not all be, um worthy to fill an hour-long episode but uh you know you never know um yeah um so before we get started into this i've got to tell a little anecdote that i think our listeners will enjoy it has nothing to do with 1992 but you'll you'll still appreciate this uh so my uncle is he still has his nes he loves playing and i was talking to him about a month ago and it came up that he has never played or never owned uh, Dragon Warrior. Okay. And I was like, oh, this has to be fixed. Huh. So I went out to local used game store and found a copy for him. You know, they're about six bucks mm-hmm. on average. And took that over to him and surprised him and said, here you go. Happy birthday, Dragon Warrior. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I've never heard of this. And I'm like, yeah, you got to play it. And I thought, you know, he'd, he'd enjoy it, maybe play it a little bit. Uh, he kind of likes rpgs to some degree but he's never played a lot of video game rpgs and over the last week especially there's just been this like non-stop text message conversation going back and forth of him 
you know, kind of finding something or every time he levels up, he texts me or every time he thinks he's found a hint as to where something else is like, and it's just, it's one of the most fun things ever because I'm, I'm giving him hints to kind of point him in the right direction without spoiling anything. You know, I want him to discover everything on his own, but um, right now he's over the last 48 hours. He um, was finally able to afford the, flame sword and the silver shield oh nice and so now he's kind of picking up the scraps like he had found the staff of rain but now he's looking for the princess and the token and the armor and all of that kind of stuff and i think as of now he's found everything except the stones of sunlight which you know i haven't spoiled where those are yet for him but i you know i just it's given me such a such a kick because we you know all love these games and we've been playing them forever but it's so much fun to kind of re-experience that initial joy and that initial discovery Uh and i'm kind of getting to vicariously do that through him and it's just it's so much fun so no i totally get it i totally get that and i i feel like first of all like i think that's awesome that you know you've got this experience that you're you're relishing in but I think that that's sort of the ultimate goal slash idea of some of the nostalgia that we have for some of these games is discussing them with somebody that is just coming to them for the first time. You know, like you said, that it brings back those old memories, but that's totally like, you know, just a huge amount of nostalgia right there, which is really cool. And it's fun because like, I, I was hoping that he didn't get too frustrated with certain parts but yeah it was like i really wanted him to find the princess on his own like sure. i didn't i sure. didn't want to spoil that surprise um and just you know little things that he's encountered that i knew better but it was just kind of you know fun to hear the trials that he's gone through like when he found the cursed belt and he's like huh? he's like what does this do should i put it on i'm like go ahead see what happens yeah. and he did and he's just like oh shit <laughs> you know um or yeah. um and you know what i think it's totally a testament to good game design and how much that it holds up over time, especially if something like that can still hook somebody right for the first time for a 30 plus year old game. Um, you know, and, and like we would say, you know, Oh, dragon quest, dragon warriors, a little, a little too simple these days. You can play through it right away, you know, but we're, we're used to more role-playing games, like more in depth ones because we've played a lot of them. Right. But for somebody that hasn't really jumped into them very much, that's an awesome feeling to experience. Right. right. Yeah, and the the frustration he's felt too. Like I think right after he had finally saved enough money and killed enough gold men to buy the flame sword and the silver shield, Mm -hmm. he died and lost half of his gold. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and and the fact that you'd have to go back and save, you know, at the main castle or take a chimera wing or something like that. Like you can't save anywhere. Right. You know, so there's that risk as well of you know, either getting to the town to purchase the item or going back to the save point with like no herbs and no more MP for heal spells, you know, like, are you going to make it? Just yep. those feelings, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. So it, it's been a hell of a good time. I think he's made it up to level 19 right now. And I, I think by the end of the weekend, he'll finish it. But uh, what was the cap on that? Was it 20? Was that the highest level you could get? Or was it like 25? Uh, I never hit the cap. I always knew. So another little anecdote I learned and, you know, mentioned this when we did the dragon warrior episode that what you put in as your name 
affects your starting stats. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never knew that growing up, and I always used the exact same name. I was using in RPGs, but yeah. And the name that I always used in the first Dragon Warrior, whatever that did to my stats, I don't know. But it made it so that if I was level 20, I could not beat the Dragon Lord. If I was 21, I could do it no problem. Oh, that's weird. And it was just a matter of how many uh, magic points did you have to, you know, have just enough to get that last heal spell. And so, yeah, with, with that name that I used, 20, I couldn't do it. 21, I could. Um, and as I've played around since then with different names, I've been able to beat it at 20. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've gotten up to level 22 before, but yeah, I don't know where it actually caps out. Yeah. I think it caps out somewhere in the twenties, but I don't remember where exactly, mm-hmm. but still that's a big difference too, compared to RPGs that we're used to where, you know, 99 is the limit. Or if you played Disgaea, you know, like 9,999 is the limit, you know, right, right. So anyway, that has nothing to do with 1992. I just had to share that. No, that's, that's totally a good story to, you know, to go off on. I think it's totally relevant. All right. So we're talking 1992. And I think that this is another example of some of the games in some of the years that we were talking about before, where we're definitely into rental shelf territory. Mm -hmm. Um, As I've kind of looked through this list, which, like I said, there's a little over a hundred there. I can't remember any of these as I'm scrolling through that anybody I know actually owned. Yeah. Um, I think, well, now I, I take that back. I do know somebody who owned Krusty's fun house. Mm-hmm. Um, and one poor kid that got Mick kids for Christmas. <laughs> but, um, you know, for the most part, these were not ones that people were really owning. And a lot of them are ones that I don't even remember ever seeing even at rental stores. So, you know, I, I, we were definitely to the point, like you said, 16-bit was taking over. Mm-hmm. Um, it had been out, you know, the Super NES had been out for, you know, well, it came out in 91. So, I mean, by by the middle of 92, a lot of people were starting to already get one. Uh, I got mine for Christmas of 92. Yeah. Um, we're also looking at, like, I was kind of saying <clears throat> on Facebook today, I was talking a little bit about it. Um, for me, at least, personally, we're in the, the era of, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2 right now. Definitely. You know, um, there's the big arcade scene with fighting games. Yeah, well, and fighting games and um, beat-em-ups and all of that. Like, mm-hmm. I, this was also to the point when I was old enough to be able to go to the arcade, you know, with, with or without parents and, you know, have fun playing mm-hmm. X-Men and Turtles and things like that. So yeah. I wasn't as interested in just sitting at home and playing games because the mm-hmm. arcade was really hitting you know, what I considered the, you know, the golden era. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of these NES games were just kind of obscure and maybe there's a couple in here that people played and it's like, Oh, I happen to really love this one or that one, but I would hazard a guess that most people have only played a very, very small handful of these. Yeah, it's possible. I can, I can remember for myself though, at least like going to the arcade and going to the mall and stuff like that. But I, I remember, going down to like KB toys after or in between like, you know, arcade games and just looking through their game section and seeing a lot of NES games at this point that were heavily discounted or, you know, in a bargain bin or something like that. And I can remember I owned several of these um, just from buying them cheaply with allowances and stuff like that. Um, you know, a place like KB toys and toys R Us stuff like that. Like I own King's quest five. Um, I'm pretty sure I bought that for like 10 bucks. 
because it was discounted. Um, I own Nightshade. That was another $10 title. Um, but a lot of these had very small print runs, too. Right. But I remember seeing a lot of them, you know, um, outside of some of these, you know, cheaper budget ones. But looking back now, especially from a collector's standpoint, like, this is where some of the really high-dollar games are at. It's Definitely, in, yeah. Like, too. You know, you've got stuff like Little Samson, uh, Gargoyles Quest 2. Um, you got stuff that now, you know, if you had it complete in box or in good shape or something, I mean, we're talking like, you know, a couple of mortgage payments that, you know, that you could make kind of thing. Right. Because it just, there were not that many copies printed. You know, Panic Restaurant is another one that's hugely expensive or Power Blade 2. Um, so you're getting into a lot of the territory now where, people have discovered these sort of hidden gems over the years and have kind of gone back to, you know, to re-examine those and bring some awareness to them. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's exactly that word hits it on the head. It's the awareness factor. It's that, you know, it's, it's not that these games were crappy or it's like, Oh, nobody was caring when they were making games because they were focused on making other console. It's just that there are some great games in here. You just weren't aware of it at all. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was, you know, we're we're at a time where there's so many systems out now at this point. You know what I mean? The definitely, uh, obviously, the Genesis and the Super NES. Turbo Graphics is still hanging on. Um, at this point, in '92, I think they've rebranded uh, <clears throat> as Turbo Technologies Incorporated and re-released it as the Turbo Duo with the CD system bundled in. And you're getting like five games with it. Um, we've got the NES that's been out since '85, roughly '83 in Japan. Um, Interestingly enough, 92 is also the last year that Atari would see support for the Atari 2600. So that's kind of interesting, um, you know, that you have... Still, still hanging on. <laughs> yeah, 2600 from 1977, basically, 78, is still hanging on into 92. And, like, I can remember a couple years past that, down the road, going to, like, there was a dollar store, like, near the Willow Knowles movie theater. I can remember going in there and finding, like, sealed copies of some of the late releases for Atari 2600 um, stuff like junior Pac-Man and um, different games like that for like three, $5, you know, cause nobody wanted them. <clears throat> but you've also got on the handheld scene, you've got the game boy still going strong. And this is even before Pokemon, you've got the game gear. The Lynx is kind of on its way out at this point. Um, but there's a lot of competition, you know? So I feel like the NES kind of gets pushed off to the, to the back burner. At this point. What year did um, like Jaguar and Neo Geo start coming around? Uh, so Jaguar, I think, was about 94, 93 or 94. And then Neo Geo had been around, um, let's see, I would say the Neo Geo that we know of, like that starts with like Fatal Fury and games like that, were getting their start around 92. But <clears throat> as a system, I think they've been around since, I want to say the Neo Geo started in 1990. With stuff like Magician Lord and Nam 1975, uh, Ghost Pilots, stuff like that. So some of that stuff was around in '90, but Fatal Fury I don't think was until like '92. Sure. You know. So yeah, again, there's lots of competition right now. Um, you know, any glance through a gaming magazine at this point, you know, you're going to see the console wars in full swing. As far as um, you know, the 16-bit systems are here. Here's everything you need to know. You know, get rid of your old system. You know, stop playing that. Play the new stuff. Right. You know, which is kind of interesting because I've been going back and reading through some of my gaming magazines lately. 
I've been reading like diehard game fan and stuff like that from around that time. And it's interesting how, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I suppose. But like going back and reading in the magazines, like you really got this big sense of getting hyped up for these new console generations, you know, and then it's like what you were playing was just not good enough, you know, and it still feels that way, you know, with the internet and all. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it was very interesting. And, you know, the only real complaint that I have with a lot of these later NES games is that, and this started long before 92, but I felt that a lot of them got, I don't know how to phrase this right, but like almost too gimmicky, like where it was, I I felt like a lot of these games had more style over substance Hmm. and, you know, which is very different than the original NES games, which were all substance and they had no style because they just couldn't have the processing power. Like they didn't know how to program them quite that right. But like looking at some of the franchises as they kind of evolved, you know, to think of like some of the Mega Man games is a good example here in 92, we got Mega Man four and Mega Man five. And, you know, by, by the time we get to Mega Man five, we've got things like gravity man where you're, you know, it's reversing gravity and you're on the ceiling, you're on the floor. There's mm-hmm. uh, just Ninja Gaiden three was just a year or two ago, like was another one where I felt like it just had so many gimmicks and things that looked pretty sounded pretty. They were really, really smooth and polished, but I just felt like the gameplay just felt forced or recycled or just bland by this point. And okay. And I think I, they could probably shed some light on that. And I think the reason probably why is that a lot of development teams probably switched. Yes. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, like if you look at the first three Mega Man games, um, they're completely different games than four, five, and six, because after three, you know, the, the original developers moved on to other projects. So, you know, you have kind of a different team that, that takes up the reins. And so they kind of have, it's almost like okay, here's here's my impression of a Mega Man game. Yeah, still fun. Yeah, it, it, definitely still fun. You know, I'm I'm not going to complain about any of them. Mm-hmm. It just it takes it in a direction that I even at the time was definitely aware of. Like, yeah, this just doesn't feel the same. It it looks pretty. It just doesn't you know have the same heart to it. Mm-hmm. This kind of how I felt with a lot of these later games. Sure. And, I will give you kind of a counterpoint to that though, because I I get what you're saying, but I also. I disagree with you a little bit, but I mean, there is some, some garbage out there to be sure, but I think there's also some titles at this point that are really taking advantage of um, how to program for the NES. And so kind of pushing it a little bit beyond its limits as far as what it can do, like sound wise, graphic wise, stuff like that. Um, I look at, you know, say like Bucky O'Hare, for instance, that has really good graphics and plays really smoothly. It kind of plays like a, a Mega Man game a little bit. I didn't actually play this one until about a year or so ago um, when a friend of mine was um, just all about this game and loves it, grew up playing it. Um, grew up playing it with his dad, I think is what he told us on the show um, or on the comments, I think, a while back. But uh, amazing game, super difficult, a um, lot of fun. Uh, but there are some other, oh, I would say Darkwing Duck's another good example. <clears throat> which was kind of based on a Mega Man engine, mm-hmm. um, you know, but then there was some crap too, but there was crap that I enjoyed, even though it was crappy. Um, the Empire Strikes Back was one of them. Like I rented that one a lot and it's not very good. It's incredibly poor. I guess the way it plays, like the collision detection is really bad. The sound is really grating and bad, but 
maybe just because it's like a licensed Star Wars game at the time. I was like, oh man, I got to play this, you know. That's similar to how I was with Dragon Strike. Yeah. Because I was a big D&D fan, especially the Dragonlance series. And I owned Dragon Strike when I was a kid. And I thought like, oh, this is going to be so great. Like you get to fly dragons. And Mm -hmm. it, it always just felt like a very cheap, crappy game. Like the... Yeah. This the sprite work was pretty shitty. Um, it just it it was a clunky game, and so to learn that you know this is this late in the NES era, it's like ooh, like that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you almost kind of like force yourself to play through it a little bit, or at least kind of force yourself to like it. You know, uh, almost as if the game itself is, um, you know, say like a vegetable that you don't like to eat. Like you mm-hmm. you want to like finish it, you know, to say. Yeah, I finished it, you know, but is it good? Not really, you know. Yeah, or Contra Force, which I know is a kind of different development team than the other Contra games too, and was originally a wasn't that going to be a completely different franchise, and they kind of yeah, shoot the Contra thing. Contra, yeah, yeah, and it's one that's really glossy and like has a lot of cool features to it, but it just plays off like yeah, I feel like it plays like Russian Attack a little bit. Yeah, you know. Um, I don't know. It's weird. So, but like so, some of yeah, those, the, the ones that are worth a bunch of money too. It's like right, right. They're worth money because like nobody hung on to them because they weren't that good in the beginning. I feel like. I don't so know. yeah, ninety two is an interesting year. There's a lot of very obscure games here and ones that feel like they should be better than they actually are, and others that they're are still better. Cool. It's like it's just such yeah. a weird mix. It's it's wrong. a very very hard year to actually like define. Yeah, it's just different. Um, mm-hmm. Another one I think that's really good is Super Spy Hunter because it's it plays really fast. Like it, it I like the original Spy Hunter as well, but um, this one sort of takes that and makes it into like this much faster game that adds like boss fights and um, has really good music and everything. Uh, yeah, it just depends. It's it's hit or miss because ninety two. I think you really have to kind of wade through some of these and discover them for yourself. Yes. Uh, you know, and find different ones. I played um, Star Trek. I had this um, later on, I think. I think this was a KB Toys game as well. Um, and it kind of played like a like a top-down adventure game, um, which was kind of neat at the time, but I don't remember that one selling too well. Um, another good one I was talking about on Facebook, on the Facebook group, is uh, RC Program 2, which I didn't play until college, but um, so that would have been like late 90s. But that was a a game of choice for a lot of us for a long time in college was four player RC program tournaments or RC hmm. two. Um, just cause it's so much fun with four players. It's just, you know, everybody's blowing each other up and you know, whoever's lagging behind is getting like automatically pushed forward in the group and stuff like that. It's super fun. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. You just, if you're, I think 92 and going on to 93 through 95, as we're going to do in the next episode, I think these are the years that if you're really a NES enthusiast, I think this is where you're going to start to discover some new things. It's like if you're hungry for, like you said in the beginning with with your uncle playing Dragon Warrior, um, you know, discovering it for the first time. I That's how I kind of feel about these later years where um, these are the years that not many people were paying attention. So in a way, you had the sense of discovering these games for yourself. And some yeah. of them are not going to be good, but there's going to be some that you discover that are really, really good. And you're going to be like, oh my God, I played this awesome game 
And, you know, you can still tell somebody else about it in 2018. Now it's easier for them to check it out as well. That's like, yeah, that game is awesome, isn't it? Like, you just have that discussion. So um, I feel yeah, like that, that's a very good point. You know what I mean? Like, oh, man, I just played Power Blade 2, and it's, like, really, really cool. Um, if you dig the first one, like, you should totally check it out. So I don't know. I think that's what's cool about it. It kind of it's a way to sort of trigger a little bit more nostalgia, I guess, or, you know, kind of get that feeling again of discovering something for the first time. Yeah. So. so speaking of finding hidden gems and discovering games for the first time, that's kind of what we set out to do, isn't it? It is. So um, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. When you told me what your pick was, I had every intention to sit down and play it, which I never had. Uh-huh. And time got away from me this week so it's still completely brand new to me that's fine that's fine so So, i i got no problem with that so i would say since that's kind of a good lead-in why don't you go ahead and kick this off okay i will do that um so my hidden gem sort of underappreciated pick for this week um was one that i played early around this time um this was a game that probably not a lot of people played um Obviously, you know, just due to the time frame. But so my pick for underappreciated game is uh, the game Nightshade. And it's by Ultra Games. It was actually developed by Beam Software, who would go on to do quite a few other things. But um, Nightshade, the official title, I guess, would be uh, Nightshade Part 1, The Claws of Tech. But it never sold enough to get a Part 2. So it kind of just uh, leaves it hanging. A little bit, but uh, it's cool. It's um, as I've talked about on the show before. I'm a big fan of old school adventure games, and that's what this is basically. Uh, this is kind of a, a Sierra-like point-and-click type adventure game with a superhero twist to it. So um, it kind of has that. I feel like this game has that sort of '90s comic book feel to it, where it's just a little bit random, but it feels comic booky. Um, so basically, the story is um, the game takes place in a um, you know Metro City type environment, and Metro City is protected by a local superhero named Vortex. And so it like the story gets really dark all of a sudden. Like basically, um, these gangs like overpower and kill the city's superhero, and this new um, supervillain rises up, and uh, he's named Sutek, and he's kind of got his like Egyptian sort of feel like the game the whole game sort of has like this egyptian sort of feel to it like the bad guys do but uh so anyway then you decide to um take matters into your own hands and uh put on a fedora and a trench coat and a pair of sunglasses and you become nightshade and so you set out to um unravel the mystery and it's just it's kind of fun because um the game starts off in sort of an unconventional way um the first screen that you're on i should mention uh, so you can move your character around on the screen um you can press a or b to bring up a menu and it's much like a point and click game so you can you know open examine use um view your inventory stuff like that so it's kind of a puzzle solving game but anyway the first screen starts off with the bad guy tying you to a chair and saying haha nightshade like you won't you know interfere in my plans anymore and then he just leaves. And so he leaves you tied there and there's a bomb there. And so all of a sudden you're kind of like trying to figure out like, what do you do, right? So you're tied up on this chair, there's a bomb and there's uh, um, like a wall right there. So you quickly figure out like, if I move my guy behind the wall and let the bomb explode, I'll be fine. 
that's what you do. And then you go over to the candle right there and you use the, you uh, put your guy next to the candle and it burns the ropes of the chair and then you're free. So that kind of teaches you right off the bat, like what kind of game this is. But the funny thing is just the way that the dialogue is very campy. Um, and it's, it's written in a way that like, it's, it's overly funny in that 90s sort of way, like self-referential tongue in cheek kind of thing. Cause, uh, a lot of characters are always mispronouncing your name. I was calling you lampshade instead of nightshade and uh, just different, like, um, I don't know, different quite types of quotes and stuff like that, that are just very cheesy and like sort of like a 1960s Batman almost. But anyway, so that's the type of game it is. Uh, do they have, do they have shark repellent? No, I don't think there's shark repellent. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a couple other items that later on in the game that um, are just joke items. Don't really do anything, but uh yeah, it's just that kind of style. But uh, one other thing I will talk about with this game, it's got a very inventive um, sort of continue system to it in that uh, if you run out of health, oh, I should mention too that uh, besides the adventure part, the puzzle solving aspect, uh, this does have a fighting game to it. So whenever you encounter an enemy on the map, it goes into a Blades of Steel-esque like side-scrolling like beat-em-up part. Nice. So you have to like... You know, you press B for punches, and you can duck, and you can jump, and stuff like that. So you have to, like, beat up the other guy before you get killed, right? But anyway, what I was going to say is, when you when you lose all your health... I'm just picturing Nightshade sitting in the penalty box now. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so when gradius. you lose all your health, you don't actually die outright, but what happens is uh, the screen comes up, and uh, the the main boss has tied you to, like, some sort of death machine, um, so it's kind of like a, you know, like a Goldfinger type moment. So it'll be like, oh, you're not going to stop me anymore, or Nightshade. And so like the first time, um, it's a it's a puzzle solving segment, and it's still in real time. So you're tied to this conveyor belt, and you're like, you know, slowly inching your way towards this press that's like pressing down, you know, kind of like in a movie or something. But you can still uh, you can still do stuff. So there's two levers um, as you're kind of passing by very slowly. And you see them and you can't, op- like, you try to use them. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm too far away or whatever. And so as you're getting closer, then um, in this case, you want to you want to use or examine the, um, the levers, like right when your foot is near them, because you're going to trigger them with your foot. The funny thing is, uh, one of them sets you free, and one of them just speeds the conveyor up and just crushes you instantly, which is really funny. <laughs> but... If you if you survive the trap, basically you don't lose a life, and then you just start you know where you were, so you can kind of continue uh, with no penalty. But as you go through this, it's not the same trap over and over. There's five different traps, and each time you die, it advances to like the next one, and like several of those you can escape from, and some of them you can't. And if you can't escape, it's a hard game over. And that's the only other detriment to this is. There's no passwords and there's no save feature. So you kind of have to beat the whole game from scratch. But the kicker is if you enjoy this kind of game and you kind of memorize it, like what to do and when, you can run through it pretty quickly because it's really not that long. So, uh, but it's, yeah, it's just got this weird sense of humor to it. And it's kind of macabre and it's kind of just weird in that 90s comic book adventure game sense. So that's why I. I feel that it's kind of an underappreciated gem mm. in my book. So what is it that you enjoy most about it? I think just the sense of humor about it. You know, it's an adventure game, but, uh, you know, it's also just not, uh, it doesn't take itself too seriously. 
yeah. like Sam and Sam and Max level humor or not quite that far. Bit. Yeah, that that'd be a good way to um to put it. Yeah. Um it's just it's got to be experienced to be um you know to be believed almost because it's just um yeah, it's got that Lucas Arts sort of humor to it. Hmm. So that's me. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. I, um, wow, there's a weird echo. I don't know. Um, yeah, it was interesting, like looking up a little bit about this because it it's a hard game to figure out what it was just from looking at screenshots or whatever. Because it, yeah, th- yeah, that was my first impression was that it's probably like a point and click type Shadowgate uninvited style game. But then you kind of see the more action fighting parts it's like i wasn't quite sure what this was but yeah it's just it's just weird like it's a mixture of a couple things you know um funny enough um the company that did this beam software after this um they would go on to develop shadow run on the super nes oh okay they actually because of like the short development time and stuff like that they actually used a lot of the framework and the assets from nightshade to kind of build shadow run as far as like the dialogue system and some of the gameplay elements and stuff like that. So hmm. uh, kind of interesting. If you played Shadowrun uh, on the Super NES and you played Nightshade, there's there's a couple of similarities between the two. So what's the total like playtime? You said it it can be played through pretty quick, but I would say once you kind of get the hang of it, um, it's not a very long game. You can probably get through in about forty five minutes okay. uh, once you know what you're doing. Kind of like you know, okay, I should say this kind of reminds me a little bit of Clock Tower when we did the clock tower review, oh, okay. it kind of had that sort of feel to it, like a side scrolling, um, you know, side scrolling adventure game that you, you know, interact with the environment. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that a game that came out this late had no password, no saves, you know, because that's, that's not common. Um, it's not, but although... I was reading some development interviews with the, um, the designer. And I think that was more of a budget choice. Like they weren't allowed to use the, um, like the cartridges that had battery backup or, uh, you know, program for a password save because that would cost the development team more money. Yeah. Yeah. So, I wonder if that's kind of a decision for a lot of these, because actually the I game that I'm this decision. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, huh, yeah, that's interesting. So it's always a shame when you find a game like this that, you know, doesn't have that option because it just makes it so much more difficult to play, which, which is fine. You know, I'm yeah. trying to train myself you know, to break the habit of, oh, every time I sit down to play a game, I have to play through it. Like that's, yeah, you know, breaking the habit of making that the goal. Um, right. But yeah. I think about that with like Blaster Master every time I play that. Like that's a pretty long game that, you know, it's got to be a one sitting kind of thing. But yeah, I, I would classify those as a Saturday afternoon game. You know, yes. you know, you've got you've got time, you've got nothing going on, you know, brew a pot of coffee in the morning and start up Blaster Master and you know, play till about two, three o'clock, you know, play through it. So, but those, right. I mean, not everybody has those days too. So it, like you said, right. uh, you know, that's the problem when we start to become adults and have more responsibilities and stuff, you don't always have that free time, uh, which also, like you said before, I know uh, that's kind of the benefit to playing on like virtual console and stuff like that, because then, you know, you can quick save, you can, you know, you can kind of use these more modern features to kind of help budget your time. Right. Right. So, okay. Yeah. This is, this is interesting. I'll. Yeah. I'm curious for you to check it out. And um, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on it. 
this is one of those covers that I definitely remember. So I think it was it was either at the um, like Babbage's dump bin or it was at the rental store, one or the other, because I I definitely remember it. Yeah, yeah. And if not, it's you know it's probably one of the ones that was for sale at your video store because it probably wasn't rented very much. So uh, uh, perhaps you might have seen it for seven ninety five or nine ninety five, which you know again. As a as a kid slash teenager in this era, um, you know, anytime that you saw a cheap game, it was like, well, I'll take a chance on that. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, your top sellers are still fifty dollar games. You know, your your Mario's, your Contras, your Zelda's, stuff like that. I mean, you know, so. Yep. righty. So anything else to throw in with uh with Nightshade before we move on? I don't think so. I think if you are a fan of adventure games and you know stuff like that, I think it's worth checking out. All right. Cool. So mine is one that I actually owned as a kid as well. I can very vividly remember the day that I bought it. It was from Kay's Merchandise. Yeah. Uh, probably would have been in 92, maybe 93. And uh, I remember seeing it there on the rack. I had some allowance money in my pocket. And it's like, oh, screw it. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, so my game is Wizards and Warriors 3. Nice. I had um, a feeling you were going to pick that. Yeah, so this is one that I don't know if this has come through on the show or not. I know we did a Wizards and Warriors episode, but this was one of those franchises that I was a really, really big fan of um, growing up. And so to see part three come out, it's like, yes, of course I'm going to own this. And what's interesting about this franchise is that with the exception of part one, um, all of these games are ones that I have a ton of nostalgia for, and I loved them as a kid. Mm-hmm. And the older I get and the more times I revisit them, I realize that they're just not that good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like Iron Sword, I played the crap out of that game growing up. And every time I come back to it, it's like, you know, it's just it's a very flawed game. And I, I can't ignore that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this is the same. And I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to say that you know too early on in the review because I don't want to steer people away from this. I do want you know I am recommending it and I do want people to go play it. Um, it's just with that caveat that you know it's it's not a perfect game. And um, if you're thinking like oh this is just as good as the first one, it just didn't get as known. It's like no, it's it's got some definite flaws. Um, but what it also has going for it is an incredibly cool concept and game mechanic that I've never really seen in another game. And it's worth playing just to kind of see how this works. Hmm. Um, so the story here is, I mean, I don't even remember the full details. Basically, Malkiel's back. He's uh, taken, he, he's either killed the king or kidnapped the king. And he's now like posing as the king in this castle in some kingdom um kiros has to go save him or you know to defeat malkiel save the king whatever but where this is takes a little bit different twist is that um kiros actually is going to change roles and jobs throughout the game so the the first thing i have to kind of describe is the way that the game map works so it's not like the first two games where you have like different stages or different worlds you go through um this one, you can kind of think of it as like a, a three-tiered map. Uh, the the main area where you start is kind of town, and then 
beneath that, like in the lowest le- level, there's a bunch of there's a huge cave cavern system. Mm-hmm. And then in the sky above the town is the castle. It's not like a floating castle. I think they're trying to say it's like, you know, the rich people live up there, but mm-hmm. it's kind of divided up that way. And so you, you're kind of moving up and down from the different layers. Now, what's interesting is that when you start the game, even though your character looks like a knight, you're actually just kind of generic jobless Kuros. Hmm. And there's a spot when, when you're walking around in town where all of a sudden you'll uh, stumble into a thieves guild. And they'll basically say like, okay, if you want to join us, you have to pass our test. And you have to go through, I, I think you have to like go find some statue first and bring it back to them. And then they let you try this trial out or something. But you end up going through this like maze. It's like this obstacle course challenge thing. And if you survive, then they initiate you into the Thieves Guild. And you have the option, um, Castlevania 3 style, to switch to Thief um, disguise. So your image actually changes. You look like a little Robin Hood guy with a goatee. And you now have the power of a thief. And I I forget exactly what they give you oh it's here in the instruction book so after you finish the thieves guild your weapon is a dagger and you can press the b button to basically attack with the dagger that's that's your ability Mm. now as you continue going through there are actually two more thieves guilds within the town and each one takes you you know to guild level two guild level three so like as as a second level thief you they replace your dagger with a crowbar um, so you can still hit B to attack, but you can also, if you're standing in front of a window, you can press up and you can enter it. So it's kind of like a key, um, at the third level guild or th- third level thief, they give you the skeleton key, which allows you to open locked doors, windows, and trunks. Hmm. Um, but you don't have a weapon anymore. Like the key replaces your dagger and crowbar. So you can't attack at all. Hmm. Now, where this gets even more interesting is that so you you become a first level thief and then at some point you find the tunnel that leads down to the caves Mm -hmm. well when you go down there everybody will attack you on site because the thieves are only allowed to be in town they're not allowed to be in the caves or up in the castle Mm -hmm. so when you're walking around the caves what you do is you end up finding a wizard's guild and same thing you can perform a task for them and you can become you know, the level one wizard. And once you've accomplished that now, again, Castlevania style, you can switch between thief or wizard and the wizards. There's the same thing, three guilds, the lowest one, you have fireballs at guild two. They teach you this force field spell that you have instead of the fireballs Hmm. at third level, you have a levitation spell instead of the other things. So it's, it's a replacement. You don't get to keep all three, like you're, Hmm you're just the best of, you know, whichever you you've got. Um, and then this pattern repeats up in the castle. There's three guilds for knights and same thing. Thieves or wizards that are walking around in the castle will, you know, be killed or attacked on site. Hmm. So you end up throughout the game, you're going back and forth between all three of these zones. And it's not, it's kind of railroaded. Like you can't just go, Oh, I'm just going to get all three thief levels first. And then I'll go do the wizard stuff. Like, Mm-hmm. You, you kind of end up bouncing back and forth because with each new 
level you get, it's kind of Metroidvania in a way of like, now that you have the levitation power of the wizard that allows you to get to this area, which you couldn't have gotten to before and hmm. progress the story. So you kind of just move along that way and it, it kind of forces which one you're, okay. you, you can, you can access next. Like it's sort of a, a carrot on the stick kind of thing. Like, you know, keep going with this one and then you're going to get somebody new and right. Right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a dictated path that you'll go through to get all nine guilds. Um, you have no control over the order that it happens. It's, you know, the game is going to set that up for you. Okay. Um, That's still quite different for a Wizards and Warriors game. Definitely. And, you know, the, it's it's cool that at any point you can switch between the three. So if you've, you know, like you're Thief level three, Knight level two, Wizard level two at a certain point, like you can hit select and switch back and forth between them. So, you know, maybe the skeleton key of the thief is really handy to get into the, you know, break into the house. And then once you're there, you switch over to the wizard and levitate to get up to the second floor of the house and come out the door. And now you're up in the castle. Like it's, it's, it's manipulation and going back and forth throughout mm-hmm. the game. that um, Makes it fun. Um, but yeah. And, and then the idea of like, if you're in a zone as one of the classes, that's not allowed to be there, you'll be attacked. If you're, huh a thief walking around town and nobody cares. They're all perfectly happy with you being there. Um, and then the, the story progresses to where once you've gotten guild three night, um, you've, you know, I think that's the last one that you get. And that gives you access to get into the interior of the castle where you have to fight Malkil and you're okay. going to, you get your ass kicked by him. I've played this game a ton of times and I still cannot beat the damn thing. Really? Yeah. It's even at it, the very end, huh? It's a, it's a very, very unforgiving game. Mm-hmm. Um, you start off with two lives, and there are the occasional one-ups that you get throughout it. But yeah, it's one of those where when you run out of lives, it's game over. And kind of yeah. like you were just saying about Nightshade, you start over from the beginning. And <clears throat> this is not a short game. Hmm. So okay, little little unrelenting there. Uh, if you've played any of the other Wizards and Warriors games, you know that the controls are pretty atrocious. Um, I'd say like they feel slippery. They definitely do. Now, the one thing that this game has going for it that I think the two previous games did not is that I always felt like Kuro's sword was kind of completely worthless. Uh-huh. Like you kind of did the, um, I don't know if you were like me, most of the attacking that I did in wizards and warriors one and two was kind of the jump skewer move. Like oh, yeah, yeah. you yeah. just kind of j- jump at an enemy and hope your sword hits them, <laughs> but actually hitting the button to swing the sword doesn't really do anything. Um, and this one, it's a little bit nicer because while well, the knight is the only one who even has a sword, um, you know, the wizards shooting fireballs and levitating and things like that. But it it helps make the attacks at least more manageable because, you know, shooting fireballs is much more controllable than swinging a sword that doesn't really have any aim. Yeah. Um, yeah. The knight weapons, you know, at level one, he's got a long sword. Level two, he has throwing axe. And level three, he has a shooting sword. Mm. Um, so it's... It, it, I feel like this is the first Wizards and Warriors game where you can actually attack and do so purposefully. Sure. 
Whereas in the others, it's just kind of like kamikaze run for it and hope yeah. you do more damage than you take. Right. Hope that you have the dagger of throwing and then just throw it and jump. So it constantly flies around you and kills everything. Right. But all of these games, it's kind of one of those that you're just going to take a ton of damage and it's almost impossible to avoid that. But so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting game. Um, I think that, like I said, that, that mechanic and that style of going to these different worlds, very Metroidvania, Metroidvania mm-hmm. style um, is really kind of cool. And it's just, it's too bad that the controls are just a little bit flimsy and uh, maybe underdeveloped, almost rushed, I guess. But, um, but yeah, if it, if it weren't for that, and if it weren't for just the unrelenting difficulty, I would say that this is definitely a, a, a great, you know, must own game. Um, hmm. But the, yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, it went off in such a different direction. You know, it has the framework, but you know, it, again, it's like like we were saying in the beginning, it, it's almost like a sort of an imitation of a previous game, but, but it has its own things it's doing too. But you know, when you think about that though, and and I was thinking about this in preparation for the show, like Wizards and Warriors didn't really have a template because. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, it was, well, I don't know. I feel like it is, it was sort of established in the first game. Like it just feels very wizards and warriors. Right. But then my point is that like, even by wizards and warriors too, like that changed things a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just having the linear stages, we're now doing the find the golden item for the animal God, and then go to the elemental world and find the Mm -hmm. spell to beat the elemental. Like it's, that's a very different pattern. Like it redefined itself. Yeah. Okay. I can see so that. now Wizards and Warriors three redefined it again. Okay. Uh, I get you. Fortress of Fear for Game Boy is also completely different. So yeah. other than the fact that they all somehow have this weird Fabio looking guy on the cover, who then is a armored knight in the game. Yeah. You know, I, I, I never understood that. Like this is not the same character. <laughs> but, well, no, if there was ever an example of the marketing department, being completely out of touch with the game, or at least maybe looking at it and going, how the fuck do we sell this game? Let's put this model on here that, you know, happened to be a guy named Fabio that went on to like now be really famous. But now you look at it, it's like, just kind of funny. Yeah. And I mean, I, they had to have been aware of it because I'm looking through the sure. instruction book of part three, like every cartoon drawing of Kuros is he's that Conan style, mm-hmm. long hair, you know, barely wearing any clothes, He-Man boots kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's the old sword and sorcery. Um, you know, that, that classic Robert E. Howard look, that's right. Totally what that is. Right. But it's like, it's not that character in the game at all. (laughs) And interestingly now, like, I mean, you could, you could really position this differently now because, um, you know, I feel like with the popularity of the dark Souls series, you could easily market this now, you know, with a knight character on the front, you know, if you, and actually it's probably a pretty apt description, but if you, if you labeled the wizards and warriors games as two dimensional dark souls games, it's probably not terribly far from the truth. Yeah. You know, as far as punishing difficulty and, uh, you know, uh, just challenging gameplay. Right. But yeah, it's kind of funny though, that like, there's this dude looks like a knight in the game. He doesn't look like, uh, you know, Fabio or Conan. Nope. Huh. Well, in an Iron Sword, they like at least didn't give him a helmet when he started, and he still had a completely gray face. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. He just looked like he had a bumpy helmet on. I don't know. 
uh, you know, it was just there's a lot of disease going on around at that time, so maybe he just wasn't quite uh, feeling himself. I don't know, but uh, now you got me looking at Fortress of Fear because um, I was thinking about like picking up a copy of that now. It's you know, it's a guilty pleasure of mine. Sure. I there was one rental store in town growing up that actually had Game Boy games for rental. Yeah, and that was one that I remember seeing, and it was a similar thing. Like I had never seen fortress of fear for sale i saw it there in the rental shelf and it's like oh my god i love this franchise i have to and i rented it i played it like crazy every time i went there i was hoping that fortress of fear was available Mm. and it was actually within like the last couple years that i finally you know found a used cartridge for 10 bucks and picked it up yeah but um yeah it's not a good game but (laughs) no (laughs) but i love it you know what's funny about that uh fortress of fear though i i remember Specifically, this game, um, I think we were going on vacation to Iowa at one point. This was probably around the time it came out, so it would have been early 90s. But um, I remember on the way up, we stopped at a mall in uh, some of the Quad Cities, I want to say. And um, I had my Game Boy with me, I'm pretty sure. And I went into the KB Toys, and they had Fortress Fear. And I was like, oh my gosh, Like, there's a new Wizards and Warriors game. Like, And it was like, can I get this? And my parents were like, no. And, like, and then that was it. That was the end of it. So I kind of replayed it. But just that sort of memory of like discovering it like in the store and not even knowing that there was like another game, you know, and then not getting it and just kind of moving on. But I don't know. It's kind of funny. And I still have never heard an explanation as to why Fortress of Fear is Wizards and Warriors Chapter 10. <laughs> and... I think you just, you, know, you just put the X in front of it to make it sound like, you know, that it's extreme. I guess. I mean, but Mega Man X makes a little bit more sense. Sure. That was yeah. his name. Yeah. But in yeah. this case, it's literally Chapter X or Chapter 10. Like, I. Yeah. It's so good that we skipped four through nine. <laughs> you didn't want to play those anyway. Right. Those games are for suckers. <laughs> so, yeah, I never, never understood that one, but. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I could pick up a copy. I'm, it's, I'm looking at. Fortress of Fear on eBay here, and it's like you can get a cart copy for under ten bucks. Right. That's that's not a bad price to pay for a game that's you know like uh, not quite on the the AAA level, you know. But that and the biggest challenge that it has is that, and this is you're probably gonna hate it because I've heard you complain about this in other games. Like the platforms are off a little bit, so it's oh, very yeah. very easy to like. <laughs> fall off the edge or miss a jump and yeah like that that's the biggest frustration in this game is that you're gonna die like that a lot so you have Uh, to kind of learn the game's sort of deficiencies and work around them yes um and it's it's the kind of game too where there are no continues um but it's once you kind of learn the pattern it's not that hard to find one-ups and kind of as you're going like you'll probably have like nine lives at some point Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of getting to the point where you can uh you know survive but it's yeah it's it's definitely a learnable game each time you play it you do get you know a little bit farther but sure so okay very cool so anyway that was that was my pick not uh not the greatest game there's there's some pretty cool bosses um I don't really like the way that Kuros is animated in this game. And we're talking about Wizards of Wars 3 again. He's almost got 
like this weird like marionette thing like they, they really kind of overly jointed him like he's got a lot of points of articulation and <laughs> kind of ragdollish he definitely is and yeah. it's kind of humorous to watch him die and fall and jump and whatever but uh yeah. it just looks cartoony yeah yeah so give it a shot i think that it's it's fun it, it takes some getting used to and kind of knowing what you're getting into it will help soften the blow but um worth checking out yeah cool all righty and um yeah who knows maybe one day we'll get chapters four through nine you never know could be a kickstarter <laughs> any minute another switch compilation coming out yeah, that would be interesting. I don't know who. Well, th- that would be weird with this one. I, I'm pretty sure Rare owns the rights, and Rare I think is still owned by Microsoft. So I think um, wasn't Wizards and Warriors. I think the first one wasn't it included in the Rare replay on Xbox One? Maybe I have no idea. Else, but um, I do know that that's one of those games that I feel has just gotten completely neglected yeah. and. Because it got like no virtual console releases, it's gotten almost no re-releases. So if it's on an Xbox One compilation, I didn't know about that. But yeah, yeah, that's kind of among like a half a dozen games that just never hit virtual console, and I just could not understand why, other than obviously license and rights and nonsense yeah. like that. But it's just an old IP that uh, you know is just kind of forgotten about a little bit i think uh yeah wizards and warriors i think is on is it is it on rare replay let's see it's probably just a replay of it um awesome said nah yeah i don't think it is on there um (laughs) unfortunately but uh either way it's it's cheap enough that you know you can still uh play the originals but i i do think that this is this would be kind of interesting and, and possibly right for a Kickstarter slash remake, reimagining, something like that. I think there's enough nostalgic fans. You could probably make it pretty cheaply and still get some of the original talent and make a pretty decent game. If you build it as sort of a 2D Dark Souls, but with the you know, with the feel of Wizards and Warriors and get David Wise to come back and do the soundtrack, mm-hmm. I I think you could have a, a reasonably successful Kickstarter. You know, if the expectations weren't set terribly high, but uh, you know, you could, I could see that. You know, I would right. even play like a maybe a fan hack or you know something unofficial that maybe would be a slightly different version of this game. I think that would be cool too. So. Well, and you know, it's the other thing too, where even if that doesn't happen, these games are not unattainable. Like I was just yeah, looking up, yeah. and even Wizards and Warriors Three, which is the most valuable of the whole series and we're talking about you know 1992 games were starting to get more expensive loose card of wizards and warriors 3 is 17 dollars. that's not bad no not at all um all of the others are less than 10 in the series so in this day and age when like people are willing to drop like a hundred or two hundred dollars on you know like a fallout 76 special edition with you know power armor helmet and uh, nylon bag instead of cloth bag um, you know, 17 bucks is nothing. No. So, so yeah, very affordable. Uh, it's out there. It's worth checking out. So mm-hmm. I recommend yeah. it. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I think there's, there's so many other games that we could talk about too on this year, uh, that some of them I do want to devote some episodes to down the road, but, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's some good ones and there's some not so good ones, but, uh, yeah, if you're a fan of the NES and you still want more, 
especially stuff that you haven't played, um, you know, 92 is a good year. So I wanted to just briefly share a little bit of um, a couple of our listeners thoughts on the, on this year as well. I put the question out a little bit earlier today um, just to kind of see what other people's sort of hidden gems are recommendations. So um, Nick Brown uh, goes with Gargoyles Quest 2 is his favorite because he loves the series, especially the first two games, uh, which again, those are, those would be good for episodes down the road. Um, yeah. Talking about Gargoyles Quest on Game Boy, Demon's Crest on the Super NES and Gargoyles Quest 2. Um Hidden gem for Nick is G.I. Joe, the Atlantis Factor. Uh, says a lot of people hate it, but it's got its flaws, but it's still pretty good. I didn't play that one as much as the original, the text I didn't release, but uh, uh, underrated TMNT3 Manhattan Project. I would give him that. Uh, you know, kind of takes the framework of the arcade game and adds some new levels and stuff like that. Yeah, I just really struggled with the arcade to NES port of those Turtles games. Yeah, it's like. Weird. I like, played Turtles 2, you know, the arcade game a lot as well. And I just, it just didn't feel quite right. Like there's just something off about it. Yeah. But it, in a way, like maybe I have nostalgia for this now because it's so much easier to just go and find, like play the original arcade version of something. Like you could just emulate it right away. But um, I kind of have a thing for going back and playing some of these like lesser ports of popular games. Cause it's kind of a, you kind of experience it in like, its own way due to the limitations on the system you know oh sure and like the way that or when it, it, turtles 2 came out i mean i lost my mind because i loved that arcade game yeah. and obviously didn't have two thousand dollars to buy one and put it sure. in my house right. so when they announced like yeah we're actually going to bring the arcade game on put it on the nes like holy shit and yeah, yeah i I bought it and I got my personal pan pizza and I played the hell out of it and I ate that pizza and I had a great day. Right. Um, But yeah, it's so, yeah, I I love the game and I think that for what it was and the time that it came out, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I had two bonus levels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A couple other ones that um, some of our listeners talking about um, uh, Nick Thurketto mentions Pro-Am 2, which, um, you know, we played a lot of that in college. Uh, I was talking about that earlier. Um, he goes on to say uh, Mega Man 4 and 5 each had some um, some really fun levels and, you know, some, some different things going on. Um, he also says uh, the port of Rampart gets most of what was enjoyable about that game, right? Uh, which would be sort of begging for, a, like, a modern mobile version. Yes. Um, which would be cool. That's not a series that I haven't played too much of Rampart. I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, as far as it's kind of like a strategy, like base building game, but with like Tetris style pieces almost. Yep. Um, and then there's like a war that breaks out. So I haven't played too much of it, but I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, yeah. And then uh, Scott LaFerrier that uh, I think I was talking about his story earlier with the uh, uh, Bucky O'Hare um, playing it with his dad growing up, watching the cartoon stuff like that. That's a cool, cool memory uh, and just an incredible game. So, uh, but yeah, it's just, um, it's a year that uh, uh, um, Jeff Baldry also even said, um, you know, he kept playing a lot of his old games and didn't venture into anything past 1989, 1990. I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, you know, we played our Zeldas and our Mario 3s, and, uh, you know, a lot of us didn't have the accessibility um, to get to some of these other games. Well, and, and I'll go back to what I said at the very beginning. I think this is a good way to kind of wrap it up. It was that, like, most of these games were ones that you weren't 
probably going out and actively seeking. But every now and then one of them would kind of creep into your collection or you'd you'd see a friend that maybe had one. And it was probably because, oh, it's Christmas and mom couldn't afford the Super NES game that I wanted. But this old NES game is cheap or, you know, this grandma got me Wario Woods because, well, it was cheaper than Star Fox or something like that. Uh Yeah. Here's your video game. I know you like them. Right. And at the time we looked at it and said like, well, damn it. I wanted link to the past, not yeah. this, but um, I, I think that that's where most of these games great holes with Fred couples. <laughs> or, um, you know, fighting golf. But I, you know, I think, I think that that's where most of these games kind of started to creep in. And right. I I'm thinking about like my aunt and uh, cousin who had an NES and, still kind of collected pretty late into the um, life of it. And, and they, they had a few of these, like the, I, I can remember they had Mega Man four, they had Mega Man six, they had Wario's woods, um, Yoshi. And so it, it wasn't unheard of to see them, but it was just, it wasn't like, Oh, every friend's house that I go to, like, yeah, everybody owns Mike Tyson's punch out, but mm-hmm. nobody owned wizards and warriors three. Right. And so the, the people that did, realized that they were probably you know that it was a really good game and you know really had that love for bucky o'hare but Mm -hmm. they were the one friend and like probably didn't have anybody else that was also talking about bucky o'hare at school like that was kind of your little thing yeah yeah that's a good way to put it for sure so yeah everybody's got their own sort of uh, allegiances in a way right all right so we got one more year or one more episode that is to wrap up this NES Odyssey. We've been doing this for a long time now, and uh, yeah. So we'll be, you know, I mean, we'll talk more about it on the next episode. But uh, it'll be, it'll be good to wrap this series up, and it'll be, it'll be good to dive back into some more random games across a couple different systems. Mm -hmm. But this has been really fun. Yeah. So be sure to come back in two weeks, where we'll kind of lump ninety three, ninety four, ninety five all into one little group and. Take a last look at the NES life, and um, yeah, bit of a fond farewell before we move on, and then and we'll we'll be back. To- oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll come back and focus on individual games and really take a deep dive into them. Yeah, on the at the first I, or outset, I was thinking like, oh, we'll probably like walk away from NES for a long time after getting this much you know depth, but I don't know. This also like showed me a lot of games. It's like, oh, we have to do this one. We have to do this yeah. one. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I bet it won't be gone for too long. No, you're going to come back after like two episodes and be like, let's do, you know, Metal Storm or Power Blade, you know? Right. So, alrighty. Well, um, if uh, anybody wants to start gearing up for when we are done with this and are going to start taking some listener requests and that again, Wes, how would they get those to us? So, um, like I mentioned earlier, we've got our Facebook group. Um, if you're on Facebook, just look for Graveyard Podcast. And, uh, you know, we've got some good discussion going on there. It's been um, a little light as of late as far as posting, but, uh, you know, we're, we're adults with uh, full-time responsibilities, so it kind of gets in the way sometimes. But uh, we have a lot of good discussions on there. We're also on Instagram, Graveyard Duck Podcast. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Duck Graveyard, and um, you can also join our Discord group, which um, we've got some good discussion going on there. And... Uh, you know, a lot of it's just more detailed, in-depth conversation or maybe um, local pickups, things that we found, stuff like that. So, um, 
you know, just kind of fun. It's we're uh, we enjoy talking about retro games with other like-minded people, and uh, we hope that you enjoy the show. And if you do, um, you know, help us out. Please leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting uh, network of choice. And uh, yeah, we like doing the show, and we hope that you enjoy listening. Absolutely. So, looking forward to kind of wrapping this series up in two weeks, and um, yeah, who knows where we'll go from there. But until that time, I'm Scott. And I'm Wes, and you may be asking yourself, I've tried everything I can think of, but I'm still unable to go any further in my game. Is there anything I can do? There is, in fact. One idea is to enlist the help of a friend or family member. Sometimes, when we try to solve a problem, it helps to get another person's insight. Everyone thinks a little differently, so a sticky situation for you might be more obvious to someone else, and vice versa. Adventure games are as much fun for groups as they are for one player. And if all else fails, Call the Ultra Game Counselor Department. Our phone number is 708-215-5111. That number again is 708-215-5111. Long distance charges may apply. Please ask your parents before dialing any long distance phone call. Game over.